All right, we're in Revelation chapter 4 tonight as we look at a door open in heaven. Revelation 4. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 11 tonight. I'm sure if you've been around the church long enough, you probably have had a lot of incredible worship experiences and uh, worshiping to music and uh, just, you know, having time to connect with God is such an awesome thing. And I know it's often been described as entering into the throne room of God. Sometimes we might say, man, that worship leader brought us right into the throne room. And that's a cool way to say that we really got a glimpse of God's glory in worship. Well, tonight, literally, we are going to go into the throne room of God. We're going to look at one of the most detailed descriptions of the throne room of God in all the Bible. It's found in Revelation chapter 4. And we're going to get a glimpse of the glory of God tonight through the eyes of John and his inspired pen. I'm sure as you've uh, been looking at the, uh, just the world and maybe Hollywood movies, we've had a lot of people try to tell us stories about heaven, depict heaven. There's been some compelling uh, stories and some accounts of people who have, you know, had an experience in some manner. And you, I leave that to you to test the veracity of those experiences. But tonight we're going to get an inspired look at the throne room of God. And we're going to see how John describes it. And uh, when you think about the subject of heaven, let me just mention to you that I ran into somebody, it was some years ago, and he goes, he said, the Bible doesn't talk that much about heaven. And I'm like, well, yes, it does. The Bible mentions heaven 500 times. So I, I would say that that's a pretty comprehensive, at least use of the word of heaven. But I will say this, admittedly speaking, what heaven is like and descriptions of it, you know, are a bit scant in the Bible. It's mentioned a lot. We're, we're told things about heaven and that it is the abode of God. But here we're going to get a, a very close view into the very throne room of God. So before we do that, let's pray. Father God, as we uh, come before the book of Revelation again and study this revelation, this apocalypse of Jesus Christ and what is ahead in our world, we've looked at seven churches and the word of God to those churches, Lord, and we could find ourselves certainly in the rebukes and the uh, uh, commending of these churches, and now we're going to kind of change gears and move into a heavenly scene, and we're going to ask some questions about why this happens at this specific time, but we know that you have a purpose, Lord, for causing us to look above to look beyond our circumstances, to look past the temptations and trials of this world that so easily entangle us and the crises and the temptations. And, and we need to get a fresh look at the throne room, of, throne room of God. And I pray that you would imprint these images in our heart, Lord, because they're biblical and they will help us as we deal with the, the trials and tribulations and the temptations of the evil one to fix our eyes on Jesus who's the author and perfecter of our faith, to look above and not to look on the things of the earth. So help us tonight, Lord, as we look, look into your word and we pray that it would look into us tonight and go deep into our hearts. In Jesus' holy name I pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So the book of Colossians tells us something. Before we jump into Revelation 4, something that's uh, important to see. Go back to Colossians 3 just to remind you um, what the Apostle Paul says, Colossians 3, look at verse 1. Hold your place in Revelation 4. We'll, we'll return in a moment. He says these words. He says, if then, Colossians 3, 1, you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated 
at the right hand of God. Colossians 3.2. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, in light of who Christ is, who you are in him, and keeping your eyes above, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. The book of Revelation is going to transition in large part to the wrath of God. It is coming, but the wrath of God is coming to those who rebel against the good news of the gospel. And in them you also once walked, verse 7, when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Back to Revelation 4. Fixing our eyes on things above. That's what we're going to look at tonight. An open door into heaven. Uh, I'm sure that you and I could all admit, uh, even though we're not probably in a rush to make it to heaven <laughs> because we want to live and we have people we love here and all of that. But if I asked you about some of the deepest longings of your soul, I think high up on my list, perhaps at the top of my list, is going to be to see the face of God. Would you agree? I want to see God. I, I long to see God, to look upon the creator and sustainer and redeemer of my soul. And one day the Bible says that we are going to look upon him that was pierced for our transgressions. And at the end of uh, seven letters to seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, all of a sudden, before we shift to uh, the future judgment, we're going to see in Revelation 4 and 5 a scene of heaven. We're going to see the Lamb there. We're going to see the Holy Spirit. We're going to see angels before the throne. We're going to see 24 elders. We'll talk about different viewpoints of who they are and what's going on. And the question is, why at this point do we come to a view of heaven? I think partly because we have seen churches dealt with and most of them in some way get rebuked or corrected for wrong behavior on the earth. James Hamilton says it well, and this is important to lead us in. He says, our need for this text is much the same as the need of the seven churches to which John sent their letters. We know from what Jesus said to them in the seven letters that they had lost their first love, Ephesus, Revelation 2.4. They were about to be killed for their faith, Smyrna, Revelation 2.10. They were tempted by false teaching, Pergamum, Revelation 2.14 and 15. They were tolerating false prophets, that's Thyatira. She had led some into sexual immorality and, and idolatry, Revelation 2.20. The church was dead in Sardis, Revelation 3.1, persecuted in Philadelphia, Revelation 3, 8 and 9, and lukewarm in Laodicea, Revelation 3, 14 through 22. And we left, last time we were together in Revelation, with Jesus standing at the door and what? Knocking at the church. And he said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. 
He was inviting the church at Laodicea and really the church of all time to intimate fellowship with him. And he said, he who overcomes, I will grant, Revelation 3.21, to sit down with me on my throne as also I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Notice the repetition of the throne. Notice the repetition of the idea of knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. <laughs> the door is open now in heaven to get a glimpse in. Jesus has been knocking at the door of the church of Laodicea, but it seems like it's difficult for him to come in. And we said the handle of the door is on our side. But the door is open to John in heaven. Jesus said in John 14, Behold, I go and prepare a place for you. Heaven is my Father's house, and in that house are many mansions, or many dwelling places. And John, who was a disciple of the Lord now, uh, is going to get a glimpse into heaven. Hamilton goes on, he says, perhaps our spiritual state matches one of these situations. The things of God have begun, begun to lose their luster. Maybe you're struggling with the sacrifices facing you. Perhaps you find yourself more interested and engaged by sinful pleasures. Maybe you are captured by pornography, video games, uh, you name it. Everything else in life is, is taking precedence over your life. Well, you need a fresh view of the throne room of God. Perhaps you find yourself, he said, engaged in sinful pleasures. We need to see God as John describes him in his throne room. We need, to, we need the words of this passage to reach out of the page and grip our hearts with the very glory of God. It throbs with God's majesty and power to transform your life and mine, to give you a reason to live, to purify you from every defilement, to take you all the way home. This is what has always faced the church, and not just people in the church. People in the world tonight are wondering if they have reasons to live. They're wondering if there's something transcendent, if there's something beyond the mundane, if the sacrifices I make really matter, if God really sees my pain and my anguish, if, li if I'm living for something that's truly going to last. And so we need to see God on his throne. And John opens Revelation 4, verse 1, by saying, after these things, ESV, NIV says, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things, ESV, NIV, say after this. Now, if you go back to Revelation 1 and look at verse 10 for a second, you'll notice that the voice that John describes, he says, I was in the Spirit, Revelation 1.10, in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a, a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. That is the voice of Jesus Christ. The loud, powerful, commanding voice of Jesus signifies his power and his authority. And here, John is granted this vision of this heavenly scene, and the voice says, come up here. There's an invitation to come up and look and peruse the throne room of God. Think of where John is right now. He's catapulted in the spirit into heaven, but right now, physically, where does he remain? On the island of what? Patmos. Some sort of... Uh, island where he's been uh, banished by the Roman government, the Roman authorities. He's probably lonely. He's an old man. He's lost all of his friends and fellow disciples. And here he is with an invitation to come up and see the glory of God. 
John Walvoord says the invitation to come up hither is so similar to that which the church anticipates at the rapture that many have connected the two expressions. It is clear from the context that this is not an explicit reference to the rapture of the church as John was not translated into heaven. In fact, he was still in his natural body on the island of Patmos, close quote. So this is not the rapture, but this is John seeing the throne room of God. The church has not been taken up yet, but what he is seeing is something very similar to the way that Ezekiel 1.1 says that Ezekiel was transported. He says, while I was by the river Chebar among the exiles, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. That's Ezekiel 1.1. Ezekiel's vision it has great similarity to that of the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.2-4 says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up into the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. He heard things that he was not permitted to speak. He saw things that he doesn't record here, but he was caught up to the third heaven. Scholars say that's the abode of God. Paul says, I don't know if I was in the body or outside the body, but what I do know is that I heard inexpressible words that I'm not permitted to tell. After these things, Revelation 1.19, as we suggest that this is a good outline for the book of Revelation, John is told, Revelation 1.19, write, therefore, the things which you have seen, the things, I think the things which you have seen is the revelation of Jesus Christ leading up to this point in chapter one. The things which are is a reference to the churches in Revelation two and three. And the things which shall take place after these things is a, rapt, uh, excuse me, is a um, reference to the future of what's gonna be recorded in chapters four and following. And what's gonna be recorded is incredible stuff but most of it, especially Revelation 6 through 18, is judgment. A lot of what is coming is judgment on an unbelieving world, and the wrath of Almighty God is going to come down. So come up here, he's invited, and I will show you what's going to take place after these things. He says, immediately, I was in the spirit, Revelation 4, 2, and behold, there before me a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne, uh, as he communicates now, the throne and God's authority. I was in the spirit. In the spirit is something that's used, I think, four times in the book of Revelation. Each time it's used, it marks a turning point in the book. Revelation 1.10, if you want to write these down, 4.2, what we have before us, 17.3 and 21.10. What does this mean to be in the Spirit? It means that John is now ready to receive the revelation of God. He is in the Spirit. He is open to the revelation that God is about to give. It could be under the Spirit's power, something like a trance, but uh, all of a sudden he is going to get a vision of heaven. In Isaiah 6, 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Psalm 11 verse four says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. A true insight into history says mounts is gained only when we view all things 
from the vantage point of the heavenly throne, close quote. We need to see things through the throne room of God, through God's eyes. And it is so hard because right now we don't see that throne room. And so most of us, I would imagine, need to spend a little bit more time uh, contemplating and spending time in the throne room of God. Is it possible for you to connect with that place? It is. When you go to your knees in prayer, you enter into the throne room of God. There is no longer a veil separating you from God. Amen? That veil was torn from top to bottom. We can now enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated through the veil of his flesh. We can enter how? Boldly, right? With confidence to a throne of what? Grace. That we might find mercy and help in time of need. I don't know about you, but I'm a needy man. I need God's grace 24-7. And this is what he says. He says, I saw... Uh, the throne, I saw one sitting on the throne. He says, I saw the throne that was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Now you would think as John went into the throne room that there'd probably be a lot of other things that he could describe and, and, and he certainly is. In fact, he's gonna move out from the throne in something like concentric circles out from the throne, but he starts at the throne because wouldn't your eyes go there too? Oh Yeah. Once you see that throne, man, you don't want to divert your eyes at all. And so he sees the throne there in heaven. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius. If you have the ESV NIV, it says a carnelian in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Now, this is not the emerald city in the Wizard of Oz, just so you all know. However, <laughs> it's a pretty cool image anyway. At least for old television, it was a pretty cool image. But he, he says, the one sitting on the throne, here's a key word, was like a jasper stone. When you hear people talk about simile, uh, simile is a comparison in like. So if someone says, it was like this, it was like a rainbow in the sky, and they're describing something else, they're using a simile. And the best John can do, because God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in what? In spirit and in truth. He, he's describing God in a brilliant color of gemstones. And he starts with a jasper stone. One writer says, although God was upon the throne, he is spirit, and as such he is holy without human form. And yet, almost contradictorily, he did, not, uh, he did not physically see him, but the colors of jasper, usually red, yellow, or brown in color, and, and uh, it's neither transparent or nor translucent, says one writer, and sardis, which is blood red, according to the JB, has a diamond and a ruby. Cornelian is reddish-brown stone that can be clear to semi-translucent, which were emanating from the throne, preventing John from seeing any form or substance. But he sees these incredible colors, reddish brown, perhaps some yellow. And when you think about God showing up, for example, on Mount Sinai, when the children of Israel saw God from a distance, they said, the description is that God is, there was fire all around him. In fact, Moses walked into fire. I thought only firemen did, did that, right? 
Moses walked into the fire and the people said, uh, you go first, Moses. Uh, just tell us what he said. This is the power of God. In fact, Hebrews 12, 29 says, our God is a consuming fire. Man, he is powerful, majestic. He reigns in majesty and glory. And so these are flashing facets of the glory of God, hues of yellow, red, and brown. And yet, around the throne is a, uh, an emerald rainbow in appearance. A rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Now, if I asked you right now, tell me in the Bible, what does a rainbow represent? What would you guys say? It takes you back to the promise of the Noahic Covenant. And God said, I am not going to destroy the world with a flood of water again, and I have put my bow in the sky. Now, I understand that, you know, when we see a rainbow in the sky, it's pretty cool, right? And, and we're in awe of it after a rain. We see the colors, and they're incredible. But pilots tell us that rainbows are actually a full circle from up above, and this rainbow is encircling the throne of God. It's like, uh, again, John is moving out from the throne. So you think about it. Think about the fire, the hues of red and yellow and brown that probably reflect the justice and judgment of God that's going to be all through the book of Revelation. God is just and holy and true. And he will be just and righteous in his judgment. And yet the emerald rainbow at the same time reflects grace and a covenant-keeping God. And I think you have the perfect balance of justice and grace at the throne of God. In fact, the theological question that a lot of people get is, how do you balance God's justice with God's grace? Have you ever, ever been faced with that question? Well, here's how you answer it. God is perfectly just and perfectly loving. People often want to focus on one attribute of God or one part of his nature. So they say, God is love. So God's not going to do any kind of judgment on anybody. Wait a minute. God is love. But in this chapter, do you know what the angels sing, sing about God? They don't say love, love, love. You know what they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is holy in his nature. He is loving in his nature, but he is also just in his nature. And the two do not contradict each other. In fact, God satisfies his wrath in pouring it upon Jesus at the cross. If you are in Christ, God's wrath has been appeased. Amen? God has uh, propitiated or your sin uh, debt has been paid in full. God's wrath has been satisfied in Jesus taking the judgment at the cross. But for those who have not come to Christ, his wrath is not satisfied in their case because they have not received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So this is how you balance the two. And the two facets are seen in the colors around the throne of God. Uh, in Isaiah 54, as Isaiah prophesies the Lord rebuilding Jerusalem, he says these words, verses 11 through 13. He says, O afflicted ones, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony. Your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal, your entire wall of precious stones. And all your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. God is portrayed or like the brilliance of light reflected from precious stones. The psalmist writes of God, the one who covered himself in light 
in light as with a garment. Psalm 104, verse 2. In 1 Timothy 6, 16, Paul says, The Lord dwells in unapproachable light. God is light, 1 John 1 says, and in him there is no darkness at all. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not remain in darkness. He will have the light of life. Jesus, that light came into the world. And if you follow him, he will push away the darkness and bring light into your life. Amen. Formerly you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Ephesians 5 tells us, walk as children of light. That's who you are. You're not of the darkness. You are of the light. And so now John is telling us that this is the best way, at least in this case, to describe who God is. Refracted light, beautiful colors of jewels that emanate in these Descriptions like a jasper stone, like a sardis in appearance, like a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance, incredible colors. Just, just pause for a second. Just think about it. This is your God. This is the throne room of, throne room of God, and one day you are going to be there. What's it going to be like to look upon God? To look upon his brilliance and his majesty and his glory. How much time do you and I spend just musing on the fact that this is the best way a human can describe God? Jewel colors in their most brilliant light. Rainbows and, and fire and this kind of thing. And around the throne were 24 thrones and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns were on their heads. Now, as he moves out from the throne, the throne and the one sitting on the throne and uh, the rainbow and the colors, now he's moving out in concentric circles, as I mentioned earlier. And notice around the throne, look at verse 4, around God's throne, 24 more thrones are there. And upon those thrones I saw, says John, 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns were on their heads. Now there's been a lot of different conjecture about the 24 elders. Uh, some people believe it's the church or human representatives of the church. Uh, from the way that they are described, says one writer, we might conclude that they are human who have already received what Jesus promised to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Take a look for a second. Revelation 3.20 says, he who over, 3.21, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. There's 24 thrones there. There's an interesting, at least, connection there. Look at Revelation 3.5 for a second. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in what? In white garments. And then look at Revelation 2.10 for a second. It says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. 2.10 that you may be tested. You will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you what? I will give you the crown of life. In these three passages, we see a throne mentioned. We see white garments mentioned, and we see crowns mentioned. And so there's some interesting connections there. The word for elder here is presbyteros, and is where we get the word Presbyterian. We hear of elders in the church. An elder usually depicts someone who's more mature in age 
and more mature in terms of maturity in their faith. You could actually translate the word presbyteros as ancient. And I'd never say that to one of our elders that are walking around because they won't appreciate it. Man, that dude is ancient. All right, don't do that. There's a story about a little girl who came home from her Presbyterian Sunday school class where her mother asked her what they talked about. She said, we talked about heaven, mommy. The little girl uh, replied and she said, well, what did they say about it? Her mother asked. Well, the teacher said that there were only 24 Presbyterians there in heaven. That's what we learned today. There's only 24. Well, that's, that's not the right interpretation, but this word can be used, this word elder, in terms of age or rank or position. You could say it this way, there were 24 ancients. Isaiah 24, 23 says these words. The moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And his glory will be before his elders. That's Isaiah 24, 23. There are some that see them, these 24 elders, as the heavenly counterpart of the 24 priestly or 24 Levitical orders. This is uh, recorded in 1 Chronicles 24.4 and 1 Chronicles 25.9-13. through 13. As I've read a lot of different views on the 24 elders, uh, they say there's about 13 different views on who they are. Some people say they're angels. Some people say they're humans. Um, one writer says they're most likely angelic beings who attend to God's majesty. Some argue that the number 24 is to be seen as the sum of the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament. We can see this, for example, the names of the 12 tribes are on the gates of the New Jerusalem, and the names of the 12 apostles are found on its foundation stones. That's Revelation 21, 12, and 14. Take the 12 sons of Jacob with the 12 apostles of the Lamb, and you get 24. Is that who they are? Is it the 12 patriarchs who are around the throne of God, the chosen, the, the line of Israel, if you will, and the 12 apostles of the Lamb? Who's the 12th, you argue? Is it Matthias or Paul? Does it really matter? <laughs> but we know there was 12 apostles and 12 patriarchs. So could it be that that's what they represent? Additionally, one writer says their song of praise, Revelation 5, 9, and 10, definitely sets them apart from those who were purchased by the blood of Christ. Take a look. Revelation 5, 9, and 10 says, and they sang a new song. The elders are mentioned in verse 8 of Revelation 5. The 24 elders fell, fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song, Worthy art thou to take the book, and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and did purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And so some writers say in their song, they differentiate themselves from those purchased. And so this means that they may not be the church. Again, I don't think that this is something that has to be considered as essential, but it is interesting to look at the different views of the 24 elders. And so notice from the throne, Revelation 4, 5, we see something else. From this throne proceed flashes, flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. 
So from the throne, as John describes colors and majesty and emerald green and reddish brown and hues of yellow and and translucent colors and glory and 24 thrones and 24 elders. Now he describes from the throne flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. Whenever you see lightning and thunder in the Bible, you see signs of judgment. And these are uh, representative of the judicial power of God. When God comes down on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, there are there's thunder and lightning and it, it speaks of the majesty and the power and the judgment of Almighty God. In fact, right after that scene, he gives the Ten Commandments. And so God is holy. His law comes from him. These descriptions are symbolic of the awesome power of God. Holy is his name. John saw a precursor to the firestorm of divine fury about to burst upon the sinful world. The sinful world, unrepentant world, is going to face this holy one who is going to come to judge the world in righteousness. Take a peek at a few verses. Revelation 8, look at verse 5. Revelation 8, 5. As the judgment of God begins to fall on the world, the angel, Revelation 8, 5, took the censer. He filled it with fire, the fire of the altar. He threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder, sounds and flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Look at Revelation 16, 17. Revelation 16, 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air. Revelation 16, 17. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were, Revelation 16, 18, flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. Again and again and again, as you look at the Bible, you see thunder and lightning representative of God's judgment. And so judgment is about to fall upon the world, and John is getting a little sneak peek, if you will, of the judgment of God about to fall. In Revelation 4, 5, look back there for a second. You're going to see seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are described as the seven spirits of God. I think the best way to see this is this is representative of the Holy Spirit in all his perfect fullness. One writer says this description is a visible representation of the Holy Spirit. After all, how would you depict the Holy Spirit unless you did it in some sort of symbolic, visible representation. Everybody with me? The Holy Spirit is spirit. So the depiction of him with the uh, seven uh, torches here or seven lamps of fire is a symbolic look at the spirit. So don't get caught up in the physicality of it. It's a symbolic way of describing uh, who he is. Take a look at Revelation 1. And look at this Trinitarian formula, which I think backs up this view. Revelation 1, look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was, or who is, and who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, so him who is, and who was, and who is to come, most would agree that's the Father. From the seven spirits who are before his throne, most would agree that's the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Well, that's evident. That's Jesus Christ. You see the Trinitarian formula here? Father, 
Son, and Holy Spirit. Depicted in symbolic language, at least in some cases here, with uh, the language in the book of Revelation. And so we have, I think, a repetition in Revelation 4, verse 5, that this is the Holy Spirit. Think of it this way. The Holy Spirit that came to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, John 16, verses 8 through 11, is what you can look at, now is pictured with these powerful flames before the throne or as part of the throne room scene as judgment is about to fall on the earth. Think of it this way. Have you ever thought about the fact that the Holy Spirit will be involved in the judgment of God? We think about the Holy Spirit as our comforter, and he is. He seals us for the day of redemption, and he does. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but he is still the third person of the Holy Trinity. And when God's wrath goes out into an unrepentant world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will be involved in the judgment, just as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were involved in creation, just as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were involved in the resurrection. They will be involved, the one God in three persons, and we'll talk more about this if you come to 633, <laughs> will be involved in the judgment of the world. How sad. Acts 7.51, Stephen said to the religious leaders, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Do you know people can resist the Holy Spirit? People are being wooed to God 24-7. In fact, just by the physical creation alone, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands, day after day they pour forth speech, Night after night, they display knowledge. Think of this language. Day after day, night after night, day and night, human beings are bombarded by the knowledge of God just by the creation alone. By the physical creation, Romans 1 verse 20 says, man is without excuse because the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen by what has been made. And all God's people said, amen. amen. I don't know, is there really a God? Just look around. It is not hard to see his fingerprints are everywhere. They're everywhere. And by the way, they're in your eyes. Because you've been made in the image of God. And when I look into your eyes, you know what I see? I see the creative genius of God. You know, we can watch a bird in flight and we're in awe. We can see a snow-covered mountain and we go, wow. We can see the rushing waves on a big surf day and we go, ooh. But do you know we easily pass by that which the Bible says was made in the image of God? People. People. You and me. Ever looked into the eyes of a newborn baby and just thought about the creative majesty of God? It's amazing. This is a dramatic scene, but it's also a sad scene in many respects because judgment is coming. And before the throne, Revelation 4, 6, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, this is the dream of all people who like to do a little water skiing. It's glassy, man! Right? When it gets a little ripply out there, it's not as fun because you end up going bum, 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 bum. How many of you have been on a boat uh, in a, on a storm-tossed lake or ocean? 
It's not a fun experience. And uh, anyway, this is described as a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, so this is before the throne, notice, as he works out from the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass. It was like crystal. And in the center and around the throne were four living creatures. They're not animals, by the way. These are angels. And they are full of eyes in front and behind. Now, you thought your mom had eyes in the back of her head. Well, these creatures are full of eyes. And I think what this means is that they see everything. They, they see more than we see. We have two eyes, right? And our eyes are a gift. And we can see a lot of beauty. And we take that for granted with these eyes that we have. But these creatures have eyes uh, everywhere. In front, it says full of eyes in front and behind. I don't know what that means. I don't know how many exactly, but they're full of eyes. But first, let's take a look at this sea of glass-like crystal. I want you to go to the book of Exodus for a second. Genesis, Exodus. Look at chapter 24. Exodus 24. This is an amazing scene. We just studied it at our Thursday morning Bible study with the guys. And here's what it says. Exodus 24. The context is the laws and ordinances of God are laid out before the children of Israel 24-7. Moses shares it with them. They agree to do it. Then he took 24-7 of Exodus, the book of the covenant. He read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Everybody say, famous last words. <laughs> Moses is up on the mountain and they're having a party down below with a golden calf. So that didn't last too long. And so Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And then Moses went up with Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet, he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they beheld God, and they ate and drank. Oh, my goodness. You're up on the mountain, and all of a sudden, in the distance, you see God. And some commentators say, did they really see God? Can anybody see God and live? I don't know if they saw God. What did they see? I don't know. But I'll tell you what, here's how we know they saw God. Because God did not stretch out his hand against them even though they saw him. Now, this could be a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they saw the God of Israel and they ate and drank. I don't know what they ate. I don't know what they drank. But I imagine while I was eating, I'd be, wow. And some people ask the question, did God eat with them? I don't know. God seems to be a little bit in the distance. But one day, we are going to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're going to eat with God. I can't imagine two more incredible things to do at the same time. Can I get a witness? See God and eat? Pastor Mel Campbell one time said his daughter was praying and they were around the dinner table. And she said, Lord, I thank you for this and I thank you for that and I thank you for taste buds. <laughs> Are you grateful for taste buds? Yes. 
I mean, our food could have just been mechanically injected to us so we could just keep going. But we get to eat food and taste food. Oh, come on. <laughs> Strawberries and grapes and frozen yogurt and steak and pizza. Do you know, Italians and Mexicans have simple approaches to food. If you ask a person who's new to Mexican food, hey, what comes on a burrito? Well, it's a tortilla with a meat and a bean and a cheese. What comes on Mexican pizza? Well, it's a tortilla with a meat and a bean and a cheese. What comes in a chimichanga? Well, it's a tortilla with a meat and a beans and a cheese. How about a taco? Well, it's a tortilla with a meat and a cheese. <laughs> now, here's how you do it in Italian. What is spaghetti? Well, it's pasta with sauce on it. What's a ravioli? Well, it's a pasta with some cheese in the middle and sauce on it. What's a manicotti? Well, it's pasta with cheese in the middle and some sauce on it. Oh, well, what about that rotelli or the, 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 the two pasta? Well, it's pasta with sauce on it. <laughs> huh? We got something going on here. We just make variations of the same food and we all buy it, and we like it. Some of the best food on the planet. Come on. All right, I'm done with that. <laughs> Turn to the book of Ezekiel for a second. You all know you love Mexican food and Italian food, don't you? You have to. Ezekiel 1. Now, I want to read all of this to you because it parallels what John is saying, but I don't have the time. So for the sake of time... I'm going to read most of it. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just going to read. Look at Ezekiel 1, verse 22. Now, Ezekiel is, again, describing the glory of God. And he says, now over the heads of the living beings, Ezekiel 1, 22, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal extending, extended over their heads. ESV says, over their heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. NIV, spread out above the heads of the living creatures, we just saw them in uh, Revelation 4, was what looked like an expanse sparkling like ice and awesome, says the NIV. When those people, back to Revelation 4, who encounter God see him, the descriptors are very similar. They're doing their best and they're using crystal and jewels and brilliant light and fire and emerald green and rainbows and stuff like that. Stuff that is awe-inspiring. In fact, uh, the book of 1 Kings, as you turn back to Revelation, says this about the temple. Now, he made the sea of cast metal 10 cubits from brim to brim, circular in form. Its height was 5 cubits and 30 cubits in circumference. Under its uh, brim gourds went around encircling it to ten to, it to ten to a cubit. Completely surrounding the sea, the gourds were in two rows, cast with the rest. It stood on twelve oxen, three facing north, three, three facing west, and so forth. There seems to be a depiction of this pavement of, of uh, crystal or sapphire or so forth, even in the temple. And in 1 Kings twenty two nineteen, Micaiah says of the angels, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his throne, uh, on his right 
and on his left. Now we get a description of these four cool creatures. Verse 7, Revelation 4. The first creature was like a lion. It's not a lion. It's a simile. It's like a lion. The second creature was like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth, fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Now, like, like, like. Simile again. The best John can do is describe these creatures. The cool-looking creatures um, are powerful. They are created by Jesus Christ. One uh, rabbinic saying, back to AD 300, says the mightiest among the birds is the eagle. The mightiest among the domestic animals is the bull. The mightiest among the wild beasts is the lion. The mightiest among all is man. One commentator puts it this way. The four forms suggest whatever is noblest, strongest, wisest, swiftest, swiftest, and animate nature, inanimate nature. The Talmud saw in these four creatures the, primary, the four primary forms of life in God's creation. One writer says they reflect the glory and the creative majesty of God. Something about God captured by the likeness of these four living creatures. God is noble, royal, and fast like a lion. He is massive, patient, slow, serving, strength like an ox. God has the sensitivity and spirituality that we can see in the face of a human being. And he has soaring transcendence like an eagle in flight. God put them on eagles' wings. God uh, shows himself in these incredible ways. It's also been noted that the 12 tribes of Israel camped under these four banners. These four could also represent the four gospels. But ultimately, like other angels, these angels will be involved in the judgment of God. Look at Revelation 15, look at verse 7. I'm moving fast because we have a lot to cover, but look at Revelation 15, verse 7. It says, And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever, 15, 8. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So the four living creatures involved as other angels are in the judgment of God as well. And the four living creatures, Revelation 4, 8, will move quickly. Each one of them having six wings, you can cross-reference Isaiah 6, verse 2, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Revelation 4, 8, holy Holy, holy is the Lord, is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. The angels around the throne of God say what? Holy, holy, holy. You know, when we're in worship and we sing songs that start us down this path of singing of the holiness of God, man, I often feel like I'm in that throne room. Because that word holy speaks of God's aboveness, his otherness. Holy, 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 three times. Emphatic in the Hebrew, heaping one upon the other. Could speak of the deep holiness of God, or it could speak of the Trinity. Holy, Father, Holy, Son, Holy, Spirit. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is pure, majestic. Uh, this repetition just affirms his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. 
Isaiah 6, 4, and Isaiah saw him and said, I am undone, for I am a man of what? Unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the Lord. When you see the Lord and compare yourself to him, you say, I am ruined. He is holy. And I don't think that most moderns understand the holiness of God, but when you do, his incredible redemption for your soul, that he became a baby in Bethlehem, is all the more incredible. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you say? Holy is his name. And whenever, or when, or whenever, NIV, the living creatures give glory, verse 9, and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and to him who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders, they seem, the four living creatures seem to be a catalyst for the elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. And they say, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create, how many? All things. And because of thy will, they existed and were created. Do you know that heaven spends a good portion of its time Thanking and praising God that he created everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm 24, verse 1. And do you know that a lot of people on the earth today deny that God is the creator of the universe or will not even hesitate to give thanks to his name? And they have two eyes. These creatures have eyes all around. They see more than we do. And you know what they do? They give thanks to their creator because if he didn't create you, you ain't here. I got news for you. If he didn't say, let there be light, if he didn't speak you into existence or at least form Adam out of the dust of the ground and create all of this stuff and create Eve from his rib, you ain't here. You heard little Johnny heard the story about how Eve came from Adam's rib from his side. And so he went home from Sunday school that day and told his mom what he learned about, that Eve came from his rib. And all of a sudden, later on in the day, he was down on the ground like he had a tummy ache. And, and his mom said, what's wrong, Johnny? What's wrong? And he said, I think I'm going to have a wife. <laughs> I often share that one at weddings just to keep a little levity. He made everything. Do you know the, the lie? Please hear me. The lie that has taken millions of people to hell. This planet is an accidental consequence of an explosion. Because you know how much order explosions cause. The best that the atheistic evolutionist thinkers have is that this planet is the consequence of something that exploded billions of years ago. We don't know where the stuff came from. And it was pretty small, like, I'm, I'm being serious, about the size of the period of, at the end of a sentence. And it started twirling, we're not sure how, and boom, 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 boom. Things started shooting from it, and some things went this way, and the other things went this way. And then it rained on the rock for 20 million years, created something like 
New England clam chowder. <laughs> Lightning was hitting the water and... I am alive! <laughs> it is alive. I'm sorry. Sometimes when I do that, people say, Pastor Michael, you're, you're oversimplifying their view. Well, I'm not sure I am. <laughs> I think that's their view. <laughs> I'm making fun of their view. Well, you won't be taken seriously if you do that. Well, I don't care. <laughs> anyway. Do you know the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the creator? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. All things came into being by him, and without him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and that life is the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. Do you know that Colossians 1 says that all things were made by him and for him and that he sustains the universe by the word of his power. You know, the book of Hebrews says he holds all things together. This is our God. This is what the Bible says. This is the throne room of almighty God and the angels cry, holy, holy, holy. Thank you for making us. Thank you for creating us. Philippians 2 and we're done. Shane, if you can hear my voice, come on up. I asked Shane to do an old song for us at the end of today. And we bow down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. The greatness of mercy and love at the feet of Jesus. And we cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. Would you read it with me? And being found in appearance, Philippians 2.8, as a man... He, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, also God highly exalted, in, exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven, we've seen that tonight, on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be saying, well, Pastor Michael, what does this really mean to me? Keep reading. So then, my beloved, just as you have also have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't say work for, it says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, brethren. He's at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure.